City Live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Zane Asher and my colleague Julia Chatley. And here is what you need to know. Supercharged Tesla stocks investors are sending its share price sky high. Not moving the needle, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg didn't appear to reassure lawmakers. And Draghi's last dance, Super Mario presides over his final interest rate decision as the president of the ECB. It is Thursday and this is First Move. I'm Zane Asher, so glad to have uh, you with us here on Wall Street. It is the busiest day of the third quarter earnings season so far. Dozens of S&P 500 companies are reporting profits. Results are coming in thick and fast, and they are mixed. Uh, shares of Twitter and 3M are lower uh, pre-market on disappointing results. Twitter is set to fall about 18% or so in early trading. But earnings from Southwest Airlines beat estimates, and defense giant Raytheon is raising its outlook all this after those blowout numbers from tesla late yesterday which you'll be getting into uh, as the results pour in futures are pointing to a higher open for stocks with tech leading the charge all the media major averages uh, were able to eke out modest gains yesterday but stocks have been stuck in a narrow trading window narrow range for much of the week as investors await a clearer picture on earnings european stocks are suddenly higher as earnings season heats up there that said nokia shares are tumbling 20 percent after lowering guidance uh, for this year and next all this as investors monitor mario draghi's last ever press conference as ecb president we'll have more on that in just a moment but first Let's get right to our drivers. I want to start with our Tesla. Tesla back in the black. Third quarter earnings posted as a price profit of $342 million, while Wall Street expected a net loss in after-hour trading. Tesla stock went into overdrive. Let's bring in Paul and Monica. Uh, so, Paul, Tesla pretty much surprised the street with this uh, profit. Just walk us through what changed for them, particularly in terms of efficiency and cost-cutting methods as well. Exactly, Zane. I think that really is the main part of the story. The company has gotten a lot more efficient with the manufacturing of its cars, and that has helped the Tesla actually generate profitability. Now, whether or not this is sustainable is going to be the big question, but everyone is very excited by the progress that Elon Musk's company has made with regards to the Gigafactory in Shanghai, which really will help help Tesla sell a lot more cars in China going forward. Possibility of you know the Model 3 and the Model Y, which is the going to be the cheaper version of the Model X crossover. Whether or not those two uh, products can generate a lot of sales, I think that's the key to Tesla going from a more of a niche luxury automaker to a company that is more of a mass market uh, maker of cars that are a little bit more affordable for average people. And if that happens, then this might be the beginning of a great run for Tesla. So does your gut instinct tell you, Paul, that they can actually keep this up? My gut tells me that you need to be wary because Elon Musk is obviously prone to making promises that he hasn't been able to always keep. So being a bit of a skeptic, I would be wary, especially with the stock having this big pop today. I mean, keep in mind, the stock hadn't been doing that well as of late until today's solid 
jump on earnings. So I think there is definitely a lot of skepticism that remains on Wall Street about Tesla's long-term uh, viability and uh, you know the future prospects. But you know, take your hat off to Musk. This was a great quarter, and if they can keep it up, then you know you're going to have more conversations about Tesla being a legitimate competitor to the likes of GM and Toyota and Ford and Volkswagen and other major global auto giants. All right, Paula Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. Uh, when Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg came before the U.S. Congress on Wednesday, he probably expected to be grilled, and then he got it, and then some. The hours-long hearing was meant to be about Libra, that's Facebook's planned controversial cryptocurrency, but it ended up being about all of that, plus political ads, plus censorship, child abuse content, and more. The questioning was at times somewhat aggressive and combative as well. Here's an example from Maxine Waters, who heads up the House Financial Services Committee. Take a listen. Perhaps you believe that you're above the law, and it appears that you are aggressively increasing the size of your company and are willing to step on or over anyone, including your competitors, women, people of color, your own users, and even our democracy to get what you want. All of these problems I have outlined, and given the company's size and reach, it should be clear why we have serious concerns about your plans to establish a global digital currency that would challenge the U.S. dollar. Boy, Brian Fung joins us live now in Washington. So, Brian, this was clearly about trust. Lawmakers simply do not trust Facebook. They don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, walk us through whether he was actually able to move the needle just in terms of convincing them that Libra should be allowed. Yeah, well, in talking to lawmakers after the hearing, uh, they told me many of them were unimpressed by his testimony. They still had further questions, even though that the hearing um, was very tough and substantive in terms of the questioning of Zuckerberg. Um, you know, as an example, you had Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pressing Zuckerberg on uh, Facebook's policy not to fact check politicians' ads. Let's have a listen. Would I be able to run advertisements on Facebook targeting Republicans in primary saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? I mean, if you're not fact-checking political advertisements, I'm just trying to understand the, the bounds here. What's fair game? Woman, I, uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I think So you probably. don't know if I'll be able to do that? I think um, Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad. And I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, the vice chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, quizzed Zuckerberg on Facebook's own civil rights report and said, uh, you know, Facebook's uh, lack of preparation on civil rights, she called appalling and disgusting. Meanwhile, Zuckerberg made news when he let slip details of a private meeting he had with President Trump last month. Uh, he said the company's various antitrust investigations uh, facing Facebook did not come up in that meeting. He also said, uh, nor did the policy on fact-checking politicians' ads. Uh, you know, all of this is you know, just showing how Facebook faces so many problems and so many questions in Washington. Um, and the, the hearing yesterday was just further evidence of that. So how was Zuckerberg's performance overall? How good at, was he at defending himself, just in terms of all, all the pressure he was under yesterday? 
Well, Zuckerberg was very calm and measured. He seemed very relaxed, especially compared to his previous performance before uh, the Senate last year. Uh, and, you know, I think he he's getting more experience talking to policymakers. He, uh, you know, understands the issues that, that are in play here. Uh, I think the challenge that he faces is in trying to answer the questions that are uh, posed to him um, by referencing, you know, companies, the company's policies. Uh, but, you know, while he is trying to do that, those policies are very, very complicated. And so he needs to translate uh, those complex, uh, you know, that, that complex language to a non-expert audience. And that, that's really the challenge for him here. Brian Fung, live for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, so it is the end of an era at the European Central Bank. Mario Draghi is chairing his last news conference as ECB president. Anna Stewart is joining us live now. So Anna, just walk us through today's announcement. His final policy decision was basically to keep interest rates unchanged change no big surprises and that's really not surprising given all the action we saw last month pushing rates further into negative territory and of course announcing a new round of QE and that really divided the governing council at the ECB last month and that was the first question out the gate for Mario Draghi today how does he see this rift and he said with such a smile that you know disagreements happen at central banks all the time when they make these big decisions perhaps smiling because it's no longer his problem Christine Lagarde will be his successor and she takes over a really tricky context. We think about all the economic headwinds, weak economic growth for Europe, weak inflation, negative interest rates. Although I imagine Draghi would argue he took the reins in even trickier circumstances. Zane? So Anna, just walk us through overall though, what will his legacy be? Just in terms of all of his achievements, particularly when it comes to the debt crisis, unemployment, that sort of thing. He's known largely as Super Mario, and he's credited with saving the euro. And you've got to give him some credit. He took over in November 2011, bang in the middle of the financial crisis. We had borrowing costs from various countries really spiraling out of control. Investors concerned that the likes of Greece may fall out of the eurozone completely and revert back to a national currency. And then Mario Draghi said three words that really seemed to change everything. Take a listen. There's another message that I want to tell you today, is that within our mandate, within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. And believe me, it will be enough. it takes. And that's really all it took. It was bolstered by a program called OMT. That's the Outright Monetary uh, Transactions Program. It was a bond buying emergency program for the ECB and it never ever had to be used. That promise was all that was really needed. Other highlights or moments that we'll remember in Draghi's career. Who can forget this moment when a protester jumped on top of his desk. Uh, she was from a radical feminist group. She jumped on the desk. She showered Draghi with confetti and yelled end ECB dictatorship. Uh, and also those very dry press conferences where a lot of focus in recent years has been on what tie Super Mario was wearing because there started to be some correlation some analysts found with what tie, what colour he wore and what action the ECB took. Perhaps we can now look forward to looking at what silk scarves Christine Lagarde wears. Zane? 
All right, Anna Stewart, live for us there. Thank you so much. Okay, so uh, these are the stories making headlines around the world right now. All 39 people found dead in a truck container in Grays, England on Wednesday are believed to have been Chinese nationals. Eight women, 31 men. Chinese embassy in the UK says they're sending staff to the scene. Police have actually moved the truck to a secure location to maintain the dignity of uh, the victims. The death toll in Chile has risen to 18 as police and protesters clashed for a sixth day running. Uh, two people, including a child, were killed when a car rammed into a crowd. The Chilean president's apology Tuesday for, quote, decades of problems failed to quell deep-seated anger over the country's economic inequality. And the Kremlin says Russian troops are the only legitimate foreign military in Syria at the request of the Syrian leadership after President Trump said a small number of American troops remain to protect oil in the region. The president also says the U.S. presence rather, in Syria is over and he's content letting Turkey and Russia run the so-called safe zone. Okay, so still to come here from WeWork to No Work, the trouble company warns staff that layoffs are coming and how the U.S.-China trade war is hitting profits in America. Stay with CNN. Shares of SoftBank have taken a further hit following its bailout of WeWork, closing 3% lower in Tokyo. The Japanese investor is plumping $5 billion into the co-working space operator. This has not alleviated concerns uh, of WeWork staff about their jobs. Claire Sebastian is joining us live now. So Claire, word is that uh, WeWork is expecting, or workers there are expecting to be laid off thousands. Um, how far will that go in terms of bringing that company to profitability? Well, look, I mean, I think it's clear uh, from their financial troubles and the fact that they've had to be bailed out that they simply grew too fast and they're now going to have to, to right-size to continue. This is, uh, in a manner of speaking, a kind of restructuring, Zane. What we know is that the new executive chairman, Marcelo Claret, who is the COO of SoftBank, he sent uh, a memo to staff on Wednesday warning that there would be layoffs. He said he didn't know how many. The Financial Times, though, is reporting that there could be as much as 4,000. That's about 30% of WeWork's uh, global workforce. And they're also reporting uh, that they could be pulling back from some markets, prioritizing the US, Europe and Japan. And this really brings up another part of the story, Zane, which is the impact that WeWork has had on the office market, the commercial real estate market. Their rapid growth made them the biggest private office tenant in both Manhattan, uh, Washington, D.C. and in London. And I've been out speaking to, to people in the real estate market in New York uh, about what comes next. We're coming into Dock 72. and the, It's uh, fair to say WeWork's newest New York City location comes with a pretty stylish commute. How much of the building is occupied by WeWork? They've got about 220,000 feet, which is about a third of the building. Welcome to WeWork at Dock 72. For Bill Rudin, a major New York City developer, this is now the second time he's taken on WeWork as a tenant. This is their main lounge area coffee. He's also an early investor in the company and despite its failed IPO attempt and spiraling losses, a true believer in the business. If you look at the space and what we've created together with WeWork and Boston Properties, it really, I think, resonates in terms of where the real estate market is headed in terms of co-working, flex space. They were probably growing a little bit too fast and now they're going to throttle back and I think have a 
uh, a more reasonable paced growth. A little bit too fast may be an understatement. WeWork is now the biggest private office tenant in Manhattan, and between the second quarter of 2018 and the same period this year, the company almost doubled its square footage in the U.S., according to real estate firm CBRE. The problem is, is WeWork was such an enormous leaser of space during the course of the last three years, especially the last two years. Uh, you know, they leased in this market alone over three million square feet of space. And so if you eliminate them, you may have significant impact on pricing in the market. So this is our club floor. Developer Craig Deitelswijk says WeWork approached him six months ago, wanting space in this 1930s office tower right by Grand Central Station. WeWork declined to comment on this and didn't respond to questions about its broader business. They were willing to lease well in advance and they were willing to pay a premium to be in this building. So it was a pretty aggressive approach. It was. They wanted to get our attention. The problem was he wasn't comfortable with their business model. They signed long-term leases with landlords and short-term licensees with their customers. And the concern is what happens during a downturn and all these tenants that are now leasing with them decide, you know, they don't need to be in a WeWork. They could be in a coffee shop or at their home. He now sees opportunity in WeWork in a different way. We as a landlord, you know, we're always looking to expand and we're looking at some of the buildings where WeWork has too much space as a target for us to acquire in the future. Certainly a sign of the times in for a company that was set to be the, the hottest IPO of the year. There is some concern uh, in New York that, that landlords with heavy exposure to WeWork might end up uh, in some trouble. And speaking of exposure to WeWork, look at, at SoftBank's uh, shares. They continue to slide today. There is concern that the, the company has now pumped more money into WeWork than WeWork is actually worth down uh, SoftBank shares about 30% since their peak in July, Zane. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much. Okay, so let's take a quick look at futures now. We've got about 10 minutes till the opening bell. It's looking like, let's see, a higher open uh, for U.S. stocks on a very busy day. So the Dow there just up ever so slightly in terms of futures. We've got a lot of corporate results coming in. Earnings are coming in mixed overall. Twitter earnings and revenues missed estimates. 3M is lowering its guidance. eBay lowered its sales guidance late yesterday. Shares of all three companies are lower in pre-market trading but southwest airline shares are set to rise on good results and defense giant raytheon is raising its profit outlook as well microsoft shares are also higher pre-market after its earnings beat julia manuel joins us live now he's the managing director and chief equity and derivatives strategist at btig so, obviously, earnings season results are coming in mixed right now. We're seeing wild swings. Just walk us through how defensive companies are being, just given the uncertainty overall. Well, so if you take a step back, what you see is that this is truly a market of stocks and not a stock market. Uh, there are a number of good earnings, bad earnings, very, very mixed picture. Ultimately, that's going to cause a slight earnings recession this quarter. But the fact is that is that what you've had for the most part is these cyclically minded companies, uh, the big industrials have already sort of, you know, had the hit from the trade war. You're seeing it in the results. And really what the market is saying is, is there's an expectation that conditions are going to improve geopolitically 
economically, the global economy is likely to be, if anything, potentially surprising to the upside if we have good news. And that ultimately, in our view, is particularly with regard to these large exporters and, and industrial companies going to end up a headwind becoming a tailwind. So when you think about the fact that uh, we will hopefully see a trade deal soon between the U.S. and China, companies that have already made changes in their supply chain, how quickly can they readapt to that? How hard is it going to be for them? Well, it, the process is difficult, and and you know if you look at it, we've been in a trade war for 18 months, and these things take a while. What we expect is that the changes that have been made are likely to stay in place, sort of a hedge mechanism, because obviously this is not going to be a sort of a one and done deal with China. There'll be phase two, phase three. It may go on for a number of years, but the fact is is that the plans have been sort of realtered and. If anything, a little bit more certainty on the corporate level is a positive. And so what you potentially could get is more capex from some of these companies, both domestically and internationally. As long as they know the rules, the, the operation can be smoother. So putting the U.S.-China trade war aside, uh, another thing that companies are dealing with uh, for the past few years has obviously been Brexit. Now, companies can actually breathe a tiny sigh of relief because it doesn't appear likely that we are going to see a Brexit on October 31st. It seems as though we are going to get a delay possibly until early next year. So well, that's good news for the company. It, it is good news. And, I, and if you look at it, the fatigue of the last 18 months <laughs> of the trade war is almost nothing when compared to the fatigue of the last three plus years uh, of Brexit. And, and the reality is the Eurozone, if anywhere, has felt the brunt of both of these. And what you've seen is a deterioration in manufacturing sentiment, um, really near recession conditions in Germany. But in fact, when you look at it, industrial companies in Germany are more optimistic about the future than they are about the present for the first time in five years. And that tells us that there's light at the end of the tunnel and it's likely to be positive. And the tunnel has been long though. Um, so just, just walk us through the Fed's decision. It is likely, uh, according to most economists, that they will be cutting interest rates next time. Um, do you think they actually need to, just given the respite uh, between the US and China trade war that seems likely and also the fact that Brexit is likely going to be delayed? So if you look at the fundamentals, you really can make a case that they don't need to. Now, the market is very much, if you look at the pricing, there's a 90% expectation that they will, and the Fed doesn't like to disappoint when the market is that insistent. Um, but, you know, whether it's inflation, which is really approaching trend in, in a lot of measures, the economy, which continues to chug along at around 2%, the message is, is that lower rates, there's ample liquidity to businesses, lower rates can only do so much to uh, protect against the risks of the geopolitics we've been discussing. And it's probably time for the Fed to signal that they're likely to step back after next week. Okay, and how will uh, investors react to that? be a little bit of nervousness. Uh, you know, the market thinks that there's likely to be another cut between now and the next uh, number of months. But from our point of view, again, the fundamentals really don't warrant it. And in fact, um, what we think is likely to happen is you're going to have a little bit of volatility. But with the memory of the fourth quarter of last year being so ingrained in people's mind with the market sliding the way they did, 
the, de the positioning is defensive. So we think any sell-off uh, because of a more hawkish Fed is likely to be met with buying. All right, Julian, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Okay, you are watching First Move. The opening bell is next. Uh, see you in a couple of minutes. Another mixed day, though, for corporate results. Actually, my last guest said to me, this is not a stock market. It is a market of stocks because all eyes are on corporate earnings. That is what's moving the needle uh, today. A whole slew of companies in the S&P 500 are reporting today, and it has really been uh, a bit of a mixed bag so far uh, in terms of results. Amazon and Intel are reporting today after the closing bell. Um, companies largely being affected, of course, by the U.S.-China trade war. They, that's back in the spotlight. Vice President Mike Pence delivers a speech on China today. Pence, a China hawk, is expected to take a more conciliatory, conciliatory tone in today's address. That said, China remains a trouble spot for companies. Ford is cutting its full-year forecast amid weaker China sales. 3M says demand is slowing across the Asia-Pacific region. Christine Romas has been digging into the details. She joins us live now. So, Christine, just walk us through how American companies, just in terms of earnings and profits, have been affected by the U.S.-China trade war. Well, you know, it's so interesting because when the, when the trade war really began and the tariffs went on more than a year ago, right, it, companies for companies, it was like a, a bad cold. It was something that was irritating but temporary. They knew they'd get over it. Now, a year and a half later, it's chronic. And they're trying to figure out how to move supply lines, whether they should move supply lines, how to do negotiating with suppliers to try to lower costs. But when you look at these earnings, you can see that in some cases, profits are being demolished by tariffs and by slowing global trade because of the trade war. And in some cases, um, you know, these companies are really seeing their margins squeeze. So what kind of companies I'm talking about? Hasbro said that if you have a if you have a, a tariffs to go up in December, they're going to have to raise prices. Mark Zandi has push these crunch these numbers for me and he said if in december those tariffs on toys and games and books go go on you're going to be basically feeling a hundred billion dollar tax increase for consumers next year so we have kind of a de-escalation in the trade war but in the earnings reports you can see where it has gone on long enough and is deep enough that it is starting to hurt so many different kinds of companies here's what zandy told me investment spending has flatlined across the globe and hiring is weakening if the president does does raise tariffs again in December, the U.S. and global economies will suffer recessions. That's a pretty strong statement from Zandi, who watches all of this. When I talk to business leaders, Zane, they don't think the president is going to go any further than he has right now, that there's a pause on new tariffs and tariff escalation. But how many times have we seen negotiations turn sour and then the president turns around and, and jacks up rates or something on, on, Chinese, uh, on Chinese imports coming in. So there's a feeling that there's a pause and a de-escalation in this trade war. Phase one of a trade agreement uh, has been sort of on, uh, not even on paper, but at least, you know, it, behind closed doors has been decided upon. But there's a lot of risk trade-wise. And in these earnings reports, you're definitely seeing how the companies are trying to navigate around that risk. 
if a trade deal is reached soon enough, how long will it take for companies to turn things around, especially if they've already made changes to their supply chain? So they have been making changes, changes to their supply chain. You know, Harley-Davidson, for example, wants to move some production to Thailand so that it can sell bikes both to Asia but also to the European Union to try to avoid some tariffs. Also for Harley-Davidson, the president's tariffs comes at the same time that the American bike-riding consumer, bike-buying consumer, is, is dwindling. Just look at the demographics. I mean, the demographics favor motorcycles elsewhere around the world. So there's that issue for companies like uh, Harley-Davidson. Over at Polaris, they make snowmobiles and, and they, make, uh, they make boats and they make ATVs. They've been trying to figure out different ways that they can try to squeeze some of those extra costs um, out of the system. And they've been they've been successful in squeezing five billion five million rather of that cost out of the system. But they still got a lot of a, a lot of work and a lot of different companies to try to figure out. So look, if you think that the pres there will be no more tariffs, maybe you can navigate around it, right? But today, nobody knows for sure if there will be more tariffs, if there could be even more punitive tariffs, if the tariffs are going to come off. How do you plan in the corporate suite if you're not sure what the tariff regime is going to look like uh, in 12 months? All right, Christine Romans, uh, live for us there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Among the companies hit by U.S.-China tensions is UPS. It managed to beat Wall Street earnings estimates, but its CEO warned that trade tensions are a drag on business. He told me growth in the U.S. economy rests on one key factor. The consumer is very important and very strong right now. In fact, the uh, U.S. economy is being led by that. And, uh, and when we look at especially e-commerce sales, so the ESMO index has just been very, very healthy and we're expected to continue. Now, would we like to see industrial production and manufacturing grow in the U.S.? We would. The uh, trade uh, concerns, they do put a damper, but, uh, but we have seen solid growth from the consumer. Are they putting a damper on, on which area specifically, international package volumes? Yeah, what you see is you see uh, uh, exports from China into the U.S. have reduced and exports from the U.S. to China have uh, reduced. At the same time, we have seen China to the rest of the world actually increase but not enough to make up for the shortage into the U.S. But there are some positive rays of hope. This uh, first step of the negotiations, it looked like we're uh, off to a good positive start. So we're hoping that it builds upon and that we find a solution that will help improve trade in both directions. You mentioned that the U.S. consumer is strong. One thing that the U.S. consumer certainly wants more of right now is faster and faster package deliveries. How do you at UPS compete on time, given that overnight, next-day deliveries are becoming increasingly important in this environment? We've seen a real structural change in the market, and it is going from two days or more to next day. And it was led by the big e-tailers, but now most everyone is trying to join in. We believed this was going to happen, and we added 11 aircraft for this year, and uh, up to 747-8, which is the largest freighter that is made. And so it has worked really good for us. Our next day volume grew 24% this past quarter. Our second day, 17%. Also, next day by ground, uh, through our extended hour service, has really grown too. 
So this is a change that's here to stay and UPS is embracing it. So how are you, just given the uncertainty coming out of the UK right now, how are you hedging against a, a no-deal Brexit? How would that impact you? Well, we're spending a lot of time talking to all the authorities that we can talk to to get as much information as we can. We do think there's some positive uh, developments when uh, the UK and Ireland seem to, to reach a deal and then uh, the UK and the EU. Now it's got to get through Parliament and we'll see how it goes. We are prepared if there is a hard Brexit. It's not what we would prefer, but we already have things in place and, and, and we will be able to help our customers progress through that. We're still hopeful, though, that, uh, that at the very least there will be an extension and then there will be a, a more controlled uh, Brexit that, uh, that will allow a little more consistency. But right now our customers need some certainty. They need to know what's going to happen. Okay, so uh, just back to some hopefully optimistic news. Obviously, it's about two months, less than two months, I would say, before the holiday season really gives up. Um, what sort of holiday season are you expecting this year? We're expecting a very healthy holiday season. I talked about ESMO and how the uh, electronic sales is really uh, increasing. But uh, when you think about our daily volume, we deliver 20, 21 million packages a day. During Christmas, that will go up to 35 million, but will consistently be over 30 million. So that's more than a 50% growth. So what I'd like to do to you and your viewers is thank you very much for all the shipments that you give us. But could you order just a little earlier? Okay. Don't have to wait till December 22nd. Okay, that, that's a specific message for me and my family. Um, but just in terms of the Christmas season, um, it is big when it comes to e-commerce. Do you feel that you at UPS have fully capitalized on the boost in e-commerce, just given how expensive it is, uh, especially, as you mentioned, for last-minute deliveries? Well, and I'll give this quarter as an example. We had positive operating leverage, which means our cost per package increased or decreased and uh, and was a positive relationship to our revenue per package. So that's very important in our business. In fact, for the third quarter, due to our investments and our strategies, we reduced our cost per unit by two and a half percent. That will carry over into the fourth quarter as being less than last year. To what uh, number yet, we won't, won't know until the quarter goes. But that gives us a lot of momentum. That and the fact that we're growing our business, so we think we'll have a very good peak. We've added the buildings. We're adding 100,000 employees just for that peak season time frame. All right, David Abney, thank, thank you, you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right, still to come here on First Move, Tesla turns a profit. We find out how the car makers spend past Wall Street's expectation. I'll have an analyst walk us through all the results after this short break. Don't go away.
time now for a look at our global movers. Twitter shares are tumbling 19%. Social media giants daily active. User numbers beat expectations. But earnings and revenue missed estimates and guidance was weak as well. Let's take a look at uh, 3M. Their shares are also down. The Dow component and economic bellwether actually reported better than expected profits. But revenues missed estimates and the company is lowering its forward, forward guidance as well. Tesla shares, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. As expected, are up 16% after reporting its surprise, huge surprise actually, uh, third quarter profit. The company posted a $1.86 a share profit. Analysts were looking for a loss of $0.24 cents a share, so that's quite the turnaround. Microsoft shares are also moving higher after their third quarter earnings results and revenues topped estimates as well, but the company's Azure cloud computing business saw soft, softer growth, but still a 59% growth compared to the previous quarter. Dan Ives is joining us live now. He's managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. Thank you so much for joining joining us. So let's start with Tesla. Quite a surprise. I mean, that that really, that profit really took the street uh, by surprise. What happened? Here's a jaw dropper in terms of just profit. I mean, even the, the biggest bulls, no one expected a profit this quarter. And look, Musk and Tesla, ultimately, they cut costs, gross margins on Model 3, as well as S&X were stronger than expected. And this was what I believe could be a major inflection point quarter for a company that's had a massive black cloud over their head over the last year. So if it is an inflection point and a turning point, uh, that would imply that they can sustain this. Do you actually think that they can? Well, I think right now we still have a bit of skepticism that this is fully sustainable. I mean, and this is, it, it all comes down to just the math. It's going to be very difficult for them given the Giga 3 build out. It's what they're trying to do in Europe as well as the U.S. to see sustained profitability. But you got to give credit to where credit's due. This is something where if I'm Musk and Tesla, I'd print the press release from last night out and frame it over in Fremont. <laughs> okay. So uh, one of the standouts, obviously, is uh, news about the Shanghai Gigafactory, specifically because China is such a hugely important market for Tesla. When it comes to electric vehicles, China is basically, it's everything. China's the hearts and lungs of the Tesla growth story over the next three to five years. That's why Giga 3 is so key. In terms of that build out, you're starting to see trial production already now starting to happen ahead of expectations. When you look at China, you look at overall demand, you're looking at potentially 150, 200,000 units and they can now start to capitalize on the EV side. That's why right now, if you look at the profitability, what you're seeing in China and just the overall demand. For Tesla, this is really sort of a Goldilocks scenario in terms of what they showed last night. Um, Model Y beginning production ahead of schedule. You've test you've test driven the Model Y. Does that cannibalize the Model 3, do you think? That's going to be the question. I mean, I can tell you, test driving it, it continues to be what I think is going to be a strong product coming out. It looks like production will start next, you know, sort of in the summer. I think it's something where this is going to be an opportunity. This could be a silver bullet of growth. I do think there's some cannibalization when it comes to Model 3, but none Nonetheless, that's going to be something the street's going to try to gauge to see what type of growth catalyst Model Y will be for Tesla going forward. Okay, switching stocks, Microsoft to be on a revenue profits as well. Just, just walk us through why the stock seems not 
that changed as a result. Where is the skepticism coming from here? I think many on the street have missed this just parabolic move from 30 to 140. And then there's a view that can, do they still have fuel in the engine from cloud? And I think what you saw last night from the Dell and Redmond is that it's only in the early innings of playing out in terms of growth. I mean, Azure 59% growth, overall cloud, commercial cloud up 36%. There's a share gain situation going on versus AWS. But I think the street continues to be skeptical. That's why as an investor, in my opinion, this is a name next five to 10 years, I could see up 40, 50%. Okay, and another stock that we've been watching very closely is Twitter. What a disaster. I mean, you, you and I were talking before the break and uh, you described it as a complete train wreck. Shares are down about, I don't know if we can pull it up, shares are down about 18% or so. Uh, part of the problem, I mean, there are so many problems, but one of them is really uh, demand when it comes to ads. Just, just walk us through what else uh, Twitter is dealing with. Yeah, if you look, it's a train wreck in terms of monetization as well as user growth. You look Dorsey and Twitter, they've had four to six strong quarters. And this is something that really was a gut punch to the bulls. And I think now there's just worries about what the monetization, the strategy is going forward. So right now, Twitter kind of, what I would view is now goes into the penalty box uh, from an investor perspective. So how does the company turn things around then? I think that's going to be the key. It's really going to be about engagement, user growth, and further monetization of the platform. They continue to be a one-trick pony. And if you look what's happening right now, there's further and further competition for users in terms of those eyeballs. And for Twitter right now, that continues to be what looks to be an uphill battle. And this kind of came out of nowhere. This came out of left field if you look at the last four to six quarters, and the street's definitely taken aback. All right, Dan Ives, thank you so much thank for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. All right, after the break, remember when Nokia ruled the entire world? Even it makes me so nostalgic just thinking about it. Uh, the mobile phone giant has diversified into an equipment provider, and the rush to 5G is causing it major, major pain. The details on that are next. Welcome back. I'm Zane Asher. Here's today's boardroom brief. Attorneys for Carlos Ghosn are demanding a Tokyo court dismiss all charges against the embattled former chairman of Nissan. Ghosn's lawyers allege prosecutors colluded with Nissan executives and government officials to oust him from the auto alliance. Ghosn is awaiting trial after being arrested last year over claims of financial misconduct. And Southwest Airlines stock is climbing thanks to a jump in profits of more than 7%. That's been driven by a strong travel demand and higher fares. The world's largest 737 MAX operator says it's taken a $210 million hit in the quarter because of the grounding of those jets. And Daimler shares are higher by about 4%. Operating profit at the company increased 8% uh, in the third quarter. Stronger sales of Mercedes-Benz cars were behind the rise. Now, let's talk about Nokia company shares, which were once dominant uh, in the mobile handset industry, have fallen by a fifth. The Finnish firm stopped its dividend and cut its forecast because of intense competition within the 5G sector. Hadas Gold is joining us live now. So Hadas, what on earth has gone wrong again for Nokia? 
Yeah, it's a lot gone wrong. I mean, if you just look at the stock price, how it just dropped significantly, lost more than 20% of value. The problem for Nokia is fierce competition, slumping orders, and the cost of 5G. This is the largest drop in decades for this Nokia stock. And of course, as you noted, they cut div stopped dividend payments and they've cut their earning forecast for this year and the next. Now, Rajiv Suri, the president and CEO, said some of the risks that they feared of the initial rollout of 5G have started to materialize. These include things like gross margin, which has affected the product mix, the high cost of 5G and the pricing pressures that they have found in early deals. Of course, profitability challenges in China, where Huawei gets a lot of government support and uncertainty in North America, where we're expecting that Sprint and T-Mobile merger. That's causing a lot of uncertainty and concerns over the possibility of a duopoly with one of their competitors, Ericsson's. Now, Nokia says that they are going to spend more on developing 5G products, making them less expensive and getting new products to market faster. But these are clearly very disappointing results for Nokia, which, as you noted, years ago, they were known as the dominant uh, dominant force in the mobile industry. And right now, when they're coming up against Huawei and Ericsson, those two other companies are doing seemingly much better than they are in 5G. And Nokia has quite a bit to catch up on. So how has Ericsson, which you mentioned, managed to position itself so much yeah. better than Nokia when it comes to uh, the battle of 5G? Yeah, well, with Ericsson, uh, they actually beat quarterly earnings expectations. They lifted their market forecast for this year and its sales target. And they say that they just demand for their super fast 5G networks were taking off faster than expected. But it's clear that Nokia is having a problem, especially when they're going up against Huawei. What's interesting, actually, is that some analysts thought that Huawei's security problems being on the blacklist would be a boost for Nokia, that people would then turn to them instead of Huawei. But when you look at the contracts signed, Huawei has signed 60 contracts despite that blacklist. Nokia has only signed 48. Yeah, as we mentioned, the stock falling 25%. That is uh, the steepest decline since all the way back uh, to 1991. There he has actually is down 21.5% right now. Had us gold, life for us. Thank you so much. And that is it, my friends, for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Zane Asher. Thank you so much for watching. Connect the World starts right now. I'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.